Okay, let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 2. I have not prepared a special year-ending message for tonight, nor a year-beginning one, since tomorrow is the first day of the new year. But I do think we'll find the message uh, appropriate for us. Chapter 2 in Philippians, uh, last lesson, which was two weeks ago, we focused on one of the more perplexing portions of Scripture that we find in the New Testament. Paul writes in the last part of the 12th verse, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he followed that up with a statement that seems to be the opposite of what he just said. He said, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That seems like those are two incompatible statements. How do we work out our salvation and at the same time it's God who's working in us? Well, the key to this passage is really to understand the initial work of salvation is all of God. When a person comes to Christ, there is no work for him to do, and that's because God planned it, God purposed it, uh, all of it was, was planned out before the foundation of the world. And then God implements our salvation in time as he works beneath man's consciousness to change his will. And then he gifts the person with repentance and faith so they can uh, believe the gospel. So there's really nothing that we contribute in this initial working of salvation. But while the Bible does teach that salvation is of God, it also teaches that it is an ongoing work. We are justified, we are sanctified from our sins. That's in the initial working of God. That makes us fit for heaven as we'll ever be. We can't get any better than that than when we're justified and sanctified. And yet there is still that sense in which salvation is ongoing. It goes on throughout our lives as we become closer and closer to conformity with Christ. So there's nothing in salvation from start to finish that is not God's work. But at the same time, the Bible does tell us that God gives us work to do. And the work that he gives us to do is the efficient means of carrying out that plan to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, verse number 13 tells us that God is the one who enables the working out of our salvation. The ongoing process does require our work. But God is always the one who strengthens us, and he's always the one who makes that work possible. You see, if God did not supply the power for this ongoing salvation, then it wouldn't be very long before all of us succumb to our old nature, and we would never be able to live a life of holiness and righteousness that God requires. Now, in the next verses that we want to study tonight, Paul goes on to uh, demonstrate the practical side of this doctrine. He says, this is the will of God. This is the way that you are to live. This is what your life is to be like. And now he goes on here to tell us how to practice this. And this is always Paul's method. You'll notice this as we went through the book of Ephesians and now uh, these sermons that we've had in the book of Philippians. It's always Paul's method to first of all state the doctrine and make an, an, uh, an explanation of that and then to come to the practical side of it, to tell you how that doctrine is to work in your life. Now, this evening, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16, and we'll see a little bit more about what Paul means when he says, work out your own salvation. So stand with me, if you would, please, as we read God's Word. And we're actually going to start back at verse number 12, and we'll read down to verse number 16. Philippians 2, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, 
But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have to uh, sit and study your word tonight. We just ask you, Lord, you'd open up some things to us and help us to learn the, the main theme here, the book of Philippians, how we can live in joy and contentment, how we can enjoy our lives as we follow you. Bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin our study tonight, I'd like you to look for just a minute at verse number 15. Uh, we're going to get into this a little bit more later, uh, somewhat more in, in the next message especially. But I'm taking the thought for the message from this 15th verse. It says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And the theme of the message tonight is standing straight in a crooked world. With all the events that are happening in California at the present time, I don't think that I really need to remind all of you that we are living in a very perverse world. Only a few years ago, we never would have imagined that in this last election that we had to have a ballot initiative in order to protect the, the traditional definition of marriage. We never would have thought it possible just a few years ago, just about two decades ago now, that we would uh, have a fight over the preservation of unborn babies. During World War II, Americans would never have imagined that in just a few years that the Bible would be taken out of our schools, that the uh, Ten Commandments would be gone, that we wouldn't have uh, the opportunity to pray in schools, and all of that has been declared anathema for our school children. It just does not seem possible that those things could happen. And yet, with all of the wickedness that's going on in America today and what we're seeing here in California, we may not really just yet be fully aware of how bad things can actually be. And that's because our thinking is somewhat filtered by the little bit of Christian influence that we still have left in our country. But if you survey the landscape of what's taking place over the last few years you'll understand that that filtering process has become weaker and weaker and the true depths of depravity of the human heart are really beginning to shine through. Now, there have been times in the history of the world that we've been granted a little bit of respite from all of these things and it appears that things get to, get to be a little bit better for a little bit of time. But overall, the course of things is that things are really getting worse. And the scriptures do not want us to forget that we are living in a perverse world and this world is overwhelmingly against God. Now the problem though for many of us that are Christians and, and most Christians in fact is that it's very easy for us to get sucked into the lifestyle of the world. Now American Christians are especially prone to this because we're used to the affluence of the American lifestyle. And so we're conditioned to think that we have to have things. We must protect those things. We have to be sure that no one takes our stuff, our things away from us. And if they do, we become very discontent over that. And so our goal as American people and many times as American Christian, Christians is to have a reliance upon things. 
We draw our happiness from the stuff that we possess, from the things that we have. And when you do that, happiness rarely, if ever, is going to be achieved. Now, advertising uh, makes us think that there's always something better. What we have is simply not sufficient for us, and so we just have to go out there and we have to have the latest, greatest product. You know, a personal example of that would, uh, I mean, I could relate to you, is with buying computers. About three years ago, uh, I got a really good deal on a laptop computer. I think it was 350 or $400, and it was a cheap computer, but it could do basically the, the things that I needed it for. But I kept getting this ad, these advertisements from Dell on a weekly basis or almost a daily basis that told me that I need a more powerful computer. So I needed a, a computer that has 4 gigs of RAM instead of 1, and I need a Core 2 Duo Pentium Penryn processor instead of an AMD Simpron processor. I need 400 gigs of, of, of uh, hard drive space instead of the 60 that I had on that other laptop. I need 1900 by 1200 resolution instead of 1280 by 1024. Of course, I needed all of that. And the reason that I needed all of that, because it's so much better to send out an email with a rocket that, or a, a computer that can send a rocket to the moon. It's, it's better. So I was discontented with the laptop that I had, and so I had to go and buy, you know, one of Dell's best. Advertising feeds on that discontent. Now, you take that and you multiply it into every area of life in which we live, and you'll find out that it's soon going to be that you can't be happy at any time for any reason because you just don't have what you think you need. Well, this is the very thing that the Scriptures try to guard against. Happiness can never be achieved by materialism. And so what we must do, we've got to divorce ourselves from those kinds of ideas, and we've got to learn to be content in our salvation. Learn to be content in Christ. Now, the world is always trying to bend us to its ways, and if we're not careful, what it will do, it will suck us in in every single area of life, all the way from our household goods even to our very morality. Now, let's see what then Paul has to say about this. Philippians is a book that has a theme to it that's about living a life of joy, a life of peace, and a life of contentment, and it's going to tell us how we can stand up straight for God in a very crooked world. So how does Paul deal with this? Well, he starts out by discussing, number one, is the insolence of believers. Now, let me say something right up front before we get going here, and that is discontent is a sin against God. Discontent is to stand up in the face of God and say, I'm not satisfied with where I am. I'm not satisfied with what you've done to me. I'm not satisfied to the treatment that I'm giving, uh, given. In other words, we're saying, I deserve better than this. Discontent is sin against God. And it ties right back into this earlier example that we have in the second chapter about the humility of Christ. Now, the example of Christ, remember, is this willingness to be taken to the very lowest point in life that's possible and still to understand that God is working things out for our good. It's to take us down to the very lowest point in our humility and in our shame and still believe this, that God will exalt us in due time. And so the example of Christ is to show us that we need to restrain that urge that we have to complain because no matter, no matter how bad things get for us, God is always in control. Now, let's look at two words that typify the insolence 
the type of insolence that, that believers have, which is really insolence against God. The first one he uses here is murmurings. Murmurings. And this is the emotional response of discontent. Now, there's some translators who substitute another word here. They may use the word grumbling in the text, and it really means the same thing. Grumbling is that muted, nearly under-the-breath, guttural sound that you make when you are not happy about something. In fact, if you go back and you look this up in the original Greek word, the original uh, Greek word is onomatopoeic, and what that means is that pronouncing the word actually makes the sound or the same sound as the action. Grumbling results when you're dissatisfied or disappointed because something's happened to you and you think that that is undeserved. Now, there's several times that this particular word is used in the Scriptures, but none is more clearly demonstrated than what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and let's turn over to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I'll just remind you while you're turning there that we studied this passage not too long ago in the book of, uh, while we were going through the series on 1 Corinthians, and I preached a sermon particularly dealing with these scriptures. In this chapter, Paul is warning the Corinthians to take heed to themselves lest they fall. And so he brings up some examples of things that happen in the Old Testament, and he said, these things are written so that you don't fall into the same holes that they fell into. Now, I want you to notice what he says in this chapter. We're going to start at verse number 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now, listen to verse 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, look again closely at verse number 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, what this passage of Scripture does is take us back to the hard-heartedness of the children of Israel when they left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. I don't have time to go back, of course, and go through all the entire story and read all the passages. You find most of this in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers. Let me tell you just briefly about some incidents that Paul's talking about here. It, It starts with Israel in Egypt. I mean, Israel grumbled because they were in Egypt. The scripture says in Exodus chapter 2, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Now that portion of the scripture seems fine to us. I mean, we understand this. Uh, We know why that Israel cried out against God. They were oppressed. 
And it certainly was within the will of God that they were not to stay in Egypt. They were to move out of there and they were to head to the promised land. But if God had not allowed a new Pharaoh to arise, who was not as kindly disposed as the old Pharaoh was to the Jews, then what would have happened is that those Israelites would have stayed right there in Egypt and they never would have moved into the land that God gave them. So God allowed this oppression to come upon them as a means to get them up and get them excited, get them moving to go into the land of Canaan. Now let's stop there for just a moment because this is something that people often have a hard time understanding. Every action that Pharaoh took towards God's people, God allowed that action to take place. Now there was much evil that was done, and yet in every individual piece of evil that took place, we could in no way say that God was the author of that. And neither could we say that God was pleased that his children were being so terribly oppressed and and beaten into submission. But in the providence of God, he has the ability to see the whole picture and to direct all the affairs that go on. And God is able to accomplish his purposes even with that evil that's committed. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago in our Sunday morning forum class. And I used an example of an ant crawling on a canvas that's been painted by Rembrandt. Now, that ant is there on the surface of the painting. He's very close to it, and he crawls along the bumps and the crevices up and down as he goes across that oil painting. Well, the ant only sees what he can see. He can only see the things that are difficult to him. And so when he goes up that little ridge in that oil painting where the brush stroke has gone, he climbs that little ridge and goes up, goes down the other side, walks through the crevice, and does this over and over and over again in order to get across that canvas. Now, to him... All of this appears to be very difficult. I mean, he can't see what's going on. But God has a totally different vantage point of this. What the ant doesn't know is that that if he were to stand back far away from that, he would see a painting. He would see the whole picture there and see what it was all about. And that is exactly the way that God deals in our lives. We see only the ups and downs that are going on through our lives. And what we can't see is how all of that works out within the plan of God. But God has this vantage point where he stands back. He's the one who paints the entire canvas. And everything that seems like an obstacle to us who are these little bitty ants, that's his means of painting the entire picture and bringing it all together. And so God can take even the evil that's been committed and he can take that and put it all together to make it all work out exactly the way he wants it to work out. It's God is the one who paints the picture and God... God always works everything out exactly as intended for it to look. Now, let's go back here to Israel. Here they are in Egypt. And so God allows these evil circumstances to arise, and all of these evil circumstances produce the desired effect. God's going to use that to bring Israel out of Egypt. Now, let me explain one more thing here as I'm talking, because if you're a student of this and you may be thinking about, oh, well, why is he referring to Israel here? Well, they're not yet Israel. They won't be Israel until they get into the wilderness and God gives them their laws and, and God uses that law as a government for them to live by. And that's when God brings the nation together and they actually become, the, become Israel there. But here we're talking about Israel in prospect. These are God's people. They're the Jews that God's going to bring out. So here they are in the wilderness and they're headed for the promised land. Well, with only a few days, within a few days of that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, they begin to grumble. 
And they grumble because there is no water. And so God gives them water out of a rock. But then they, they begin to grumble again because they have no food. And so God sends them manna. And in their grumbling, they say, it was so much better when we were in Egypt. We remember the leeks. We remember the garlic. We remember the fish and the cucumbers. It was so much better when we were there. And so no matter what God did for them, no matter how many times he worked things out for them, they grumbled about it. Now, the idea is that they were discontent. And they were thinking, what is God doing this for? Why did God bring us out here into this wilderness just for us to die of hunger and thirst? And you remember when they came close to the border of Canaan and they sent the spies from Kadesh to go over into the land of Canaan and to search it out, those spies came back with an evil report and the people of Israel began to fall apart. They're headed for the promised land. God has taken care of them every step of the way. And what did they say when those spies came back? Well, it's recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? So all of this, this is grumbling. Now we go back to verse number 10 in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Well, that grumbling culminated in an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 16. And this is when the people of Israel weren't happy with the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Some of them wanted to take the role of leadership upon themselves. And the end of that story is that God opened up the ground and he swallowed up those who tried to take over the leadership. Now that's a lesson to all of us that we need to be very careful about the authority of leadership and doing anything to try to harm God's appointed ministers. But they were obstinate about this. And so in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10, Paul refers there to God then sending a plague upon Israel and 14,700 Israelites died. Now, when you grumble against God, you're saying that God's sovereign will for my life is not right. God is mistreating me. God does not treat me fairly. And Paul says that when you do this, you are in danger of being disqualified from God's service. Now, that is the emotional response of discontent. It's sin against God. Now, let me remind you of something else before we leave this point, And that is, don't grumble when you are where God has put you, and don't grumble when you're not where God has put you, if that obstinacy that's in your heart has caused you to fall into some hole, and thereby you're not happy with where you are. I mean, Peter said this, he said, it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So if you're doing what God requires of you and you are in God's will and you begin to suffer, the Scripture says right here in Philippians that that's good for you. It's given on behalf of Christ that you are to suffer for his sake. But if you begin to suffer because you're hard-hearted, you've gotten out of the will of God and God brings chastisement upon you, don't grumble about that either. Rejoice in that because that means that God's treating you as a son. And what God desires to do is to bring you back to the place where you can be, be in fellowship with him, where you can be blessed by him. 
So don't ever grumble when God sends chastisement. Whatever God does in your life, God always knows what's best. And then I can't help but but mention this also. And I mention this because this is really something that galls me and sticks in my crawl. And that is these, these people that are out here preaching or claim that they're preaching the gospel of Christ. And what they're actually doing is trying to feed on the discontent of people. They're trying to preach the same message here about contentment. But in doing so, they actually accentuate a person's discontentment. Now, what I'm actually talking about here is that Joel Osteen crowd, the Word of Faith crowd, the Joyce Myers and the Copelands and all of that who preach the health, wealth, and prosperity false doctrine. And what that actually does, it is a doctrine that teaches discontent. Now, it looks like it's the other way around. They'll try to make you think that they're giving you a gospel of contentment, but Osteen preaches that there is a reward for contentment, and the reward is that you get where you want to be. And so when, what, wherever you are, that's not sufficient. If God has put you there, that's not sufficient. You have to feed on the discontentment of your life in order to find contentment. Now, does that sound strange? Well, it does to me. And that's because it's nothing but psychobabble. It's unbiblical. It's unchristian. It's the exact opposite of what we find in the Word of God and especially what we find right here in this chapter in the book of Philippians. The Bible says don't murmur, don't complain because God is sovereign and when you're in his will, you are right where God wants you to be. So in the middle of a perverse and crooked nation, you are to stand up straight, you are not to complain because if you do otherwise, that is to admit to the world that God is not good to you God is not sovereign. God does not have your absolute best welfare at his heart. Now, secondly, then, Paul uses another word that describes Christian insolence, and this is the word disputings. He says, do things without murmuring and disputings. Now, disputings is the, uh, this means the intellectual response of argument. So what does he mean by this? Well, who do you dispute against when you're discontent? You dispute against God. Disputing is when you reason it all out and the conclusion that you come to is that you know better what you need than God knows what you need. And so you begin to formulate an argument against God. And what can happen to you is that even your prayers can be prayers of argument. Now, let's go back here to Israel again. Paul says what's written here, this is for our learning. It's an example for us. So so how did Israel proceed? Well, after... Seeing those miracles of God, they didn't think that there was sufficient proof to show them that their way was not better. And so they began to formulate their argument against God. Now, we know what that argument is. We just heard it a moment ago. Their argument is, it's better for us to return to Egypt. Now, write this reference down. You'll find it in Psalm 106. And there you'll find a a recounting of the entire journey of Israel and how they argued against God. And if you go through that whole passage of Scripture, you find out what they did. They come to the Red Sea. There's no way to go across it. And so they begin their argument. It's better to go back to Egypt. They have no water. And so they begin their argument. It's better to go back to Egypt. They have no food. What's the argument? It's better to go back to Egypt. They come to Kadesh. They send the spies out. They come back with an evil report. What's their argument? It's better to return to Egypt. My goodness, folks, we're talking about some people here that were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And God called Moses to go up on the mountain, and there God gave him the laws. He gave them these commands for Israel, the way they're to worship God, how they can be pleasing in his sight. But the people were upset that Moses was gone too long. They said, He's been up there too long. We've got to do something about it. Now, here God's giving them all these things, but they, are, they just will not wait. So, they begin to reason in their little puny minds. It's better for us to make a golden calf. It's better for us to worship a dead God. I mean, the one that they had just, had just been overthrown uh, when Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. And yet they say, we need a God like the Egyptians have, and we need to worship him. Now, do you see where disputing will will take you? And that's not all. There's even more to this story. I mean, God told them not to have anything to do with the heathen people. He said, when you cross their lands, don't you have anything to do with them? Don't, Don't you interact with them? But you know what Israel said? They said, it's better for us to marry them. And so they entered into their idolatry. They took their women as their wives. And God had to send that plague to straighten them out. So what happened? Well, they lost their confidence in God, that that God always leads rightly. Here's what the psalmist said in 106, Psalm 106. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. Now, what do the scriptures say about it? Well, Proverbs gives us some excellent advice. Here's a scripture most of you know in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. So, so what's the message in that? Don't dispute with God. Don't argue with him. I mean, your intellect is no match for God. You can't reason these things out and somehow you come to a better solution to problems than God has. I mean, here you are. And here all of us are. We're the ants without any knowledge of the entire picture. We can't win this argument. It's impossible. And so when we continue to dispute against God, we'll always live in discontent. So what do you do about it? Well, you hear me preaching it. You read here where Paul declares it, but you're the person out there that's living it. So what are you going to do about it? How how are you going to be a contented person? How do you get over these things? So how do you face all of the things that you go through in life, and you don't murmur, you don't complain, you don't come up with an argument. Let me give you three suggestions very quickly. The solution to insolence. Number one is to remember the character of God. Remember the character of God. God is totally incapable of doing anything that's unkind or unfair. He never treats his children with indifference. You see, the nature of God is perfect righteousness, And perfect righteousness always leads to perfect justice. And so it would be totally impossible for God to treat you unfairly. You've been justified by your faith in Christ. You've been given his righteousness. And so now God treats you as his child. Number two, remember the concern of God. Now, since you're a a child of God and he's your father, he loves you and he's concerned about your welfare. You're the object of his love. I mean, he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And so now do you think that he, he has invested so much in you, he's paid such a high price for you, that now God is going to stand back and say, I don't care? The psalm, or excuse me, Paul uh, disputed with that saying or that type of argument by saying, 
in Romans chapter 8, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So God is, is not going to pass your welfare off as inconsequential. He has a vested, expensive interest in you, and so he cares about every single detail of your life. Even so much as you all know, the Bible says that all the hairs of your hair are numbered. God knows the very last one. Now, the third thing that we need to do as a solution to this is to remember the cause of God. And perhaps this one is the most important because everything that we're talking about here tonight has eternal consequences. What God is doing, he's bringing us into his realm. It's the realm of his glory. And so what will God do then? If you're going to come into the realm of God's glory, what will he do? He'll do everything necessary to conform you to the image of Christ. God's concerned about your sanctification. Now, here's where people get thrown up, thrown off about this. God's chief concern is not that you have a good time in your life and that you have fun. God's chief concern is not that you're healthy and not that you're wealthy and not that you're a prosperous person. That's never God's chief concern. His chief concern is to bring you into the perfection of Christ. And so he's going to do everything that it takes to get you there. And so he takes you in the right direction. He begins to mold you into that perfect man, woman, boy, or girl. Always remember his objective, his goal. He will try to achieve, and that is to conform you to the image of Christ. Now, Ephesians says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's God's cause. That's God's goal. And so whatever it takes for God to reach that goal, he will do. And so if that means that one of his people ends up in poverty, ends up in sickness, ends up in whatever it might be, if that's the will of God for your life, that's where God put you to bring you into that conformity. And he says, don't complain about it. Don't argue with me about it. I know the best way to make you what I want you to be. And so the cure for our insolence, for our discontent, for our murmuring, our disputing, is to remember the character, the concern, and the cause of God. His will is always the perfect will. Now next week we come to part number two. And we're going to look at the ideal character for believers and the effect that that character has on an unbelieving world in which we live. The Bible knows how to make us a contented people. And Paul tells us right here in the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time we spent together tonight. And Lord, we pray, uh, though some things are, are very difficult for us to accept, and it's hard to get our minds off the things that we have and the things that we want, the things we think we ought to have. But Lord, where you put us and what you'd have us to do is paramount. The most important thing is that we be conformed to your Son. And Lord, we are content, or should be, that we take anything that you decide to put upon us to bring us to that place because that's where we reach our ultimate fulfillment in life. Bless the people tonight, Lord, as we sing this invitation hymn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.